This is Tell Your Story, Alaska. We talk aviation, history, theology, but most of all, the raw stories of Alaskans and the gospel. Welcome to another episode of Tell Your Story, Alaska. Today is another history one, one of my favorite topics is history, and today I really enjoyed studying for this one. Uh, This is going to be about the Klondike Gold Rush, and even though this took place in the Yukon Territory, which is Canada, it did play a role with Alaska because so much of it intertwined with Alaska because it started uh, in Alaska and Skagway. That's where all of the, uh, the gold rushers, the prospectors started. So it is applicable to this podcast and Alaska's history. Now, the Klondike Gold Rush involved tens of thousands of people who rushed up to the Klondike with gold fever, full of hopes and dreams of riches. But what the majority of them discovered was disappointment, disease, and even death in some cases. It is a tale about the human condition that we call greed, But it did leave behind a series of new towns and villages throughout the Yukon and Alaska. The story goes that a man named George Carmack, Dawson, Charlie, and Skookum Jim were in the Yukon looking for a way to make a buck. They did their best at salmon fishing when one day a man named Robert Henderson mentioned to them that he knew where to find gold. Where? they naturally asked. Near the Klondike River, was the reply. So George Carmack and his tinglet wife, they were living by the Yukon along a place called Rabbit Creek, which today is called Bonanza Creek. In August of 1896, he struck gold. Apparently, they had a nugget big enough to change their lives forever. However, there's debate now who the true discoverer was. Carmack's brother-in-law, called Skookum Jim, is cited as the discoverer and informed Carmack. Now, Carmack was ready to quit and move up to Rabbit Creek when Skookum Jim tried for one last pan and the nugget showed up. The gold he found was said to be as thick as cheese in a sandwich. If you look at some Canadian uh, postage stamps, Skookum Jim is on the stamp as a discoverer of the gold in the Klondike. However, there are reports of gold being found in the Yukon area much earlier The earliest I was able to find was by an Anglican missionary named Robert MacDonald. He arrived in Fort Yukon in 1862, where he saw, quote, so much gold that he could have gathered it with a spoon, unquote. It seems his lack of interest in it kept him from sparking a gold rush. Apparently, riches was not his motivation for being there, but MacDonald spent his time learning to speak the native language, He put it into an alphabet and translated parts of the Bible as well as some hymns and prayers. This was the time in which the Gwich'in language had been written down for the first time, and the people began to learn to read and write in their own language. MacDonald's strategy was to respect the indigenous ways of life and let the people express their new Christian faith in an an indigenous way rather than in his way. So in 1864... Gold fever really started by a man named George Holt, who appeared out of the wilderness with handfuls of gold nuggets. Locals knew about Holt's find and were able to find and make their claims early on. So by the time Skookum Jim had found his famous find, there were likely hundreds of gold prospectors already in the area. 
George Carmack eventually went off to find his own claim, and he, as he went along, he boasted his shotgun shell container full of gold, and the word quickly got out. It seems like if you want to show off your gold, you're going to initiate a gold rush. So maybe keep it to yourself. It might be a lesson there. But not long after, an even larger load was found nearby at El Dorado Creek. And for the people in the area, the gold fever had begun. With winter settling in in 1897, there were no new people coming into the area. So uh, for the 100 people or so in the Dawson City area... They had a full winter to stake their claims and get the gold they wanted before the following summer, and they did. July of um, July 15th of 1897, a ship pulls into port of Seattle with today's equivalent of $30 million in gold, or about a half a ton of gold, which was followed by another and another and another. This was the richest gold strike in the Americas. Uh, in, in American gold mining history, adding up to two tons of gold. This became front page news in a San Francisco newspaper for six straight weeks. It had the appeal of riches, adventure, discovery, and the unknown wilderness. It was the perfect recipe for a rush. Journalists were sent up to report on this sensational story, and the most famous became a man named Tappan Adney. Tapp and Adney ended up writing a book called The Klondike Stampede, and this book is perhaps the best record of the Alaska Gold Rush, or the Klondike Gold Rush. Even Thomas Edison was brought in. Drawn in. He, he uh, brought his newly invented motion camera, and his video footage of one of these ships leaving Seattle for the Klondike is one of the first motion pictures ever taken by a camera. You can even go on YouTube now and watch these clips. It's pretty cool. In the 1880s and the 1890s were economically brutal. It was one of the worst economic depressions in history. So the largest gold rush in history, which was the California Gold Rush in 1849, was still in recent memory, but its luster had dissipated. Historians say that by 1890, the era of the frontier was over. There was no longer the opportunity for a young man to go out and claim a new farm or a new land for himself. A popular song had a line in it at, a line in it at the time that said, Everybody's working but Papa. So the arrival of two tons of gold showing up out of the Yukon was just the right recipe for a new gold fever. It is said that half of Seattle's police force got up and left their jobs. Even the mayor of the city got up and left their jobs, bought a pickaxe, and headed north. Even the famous Wyatt Earth, Earp of the Tombstone movie fame, who was a real guy, uh, he made his way up north. Even Nikola Tesla, the famous inventor and discoverer of AC electricity, announced that he would invent a portable x-ray machine that could scan for gold. All in all, about 100,000 people traveled up from California and the West Coast, and almost none of them knew anything about mining, surviving in the wild, or any of them knew, knew nothing about what the Yukon winters were like. Only about 40,000 people of the 100,000 made it to the Klondike, and it's because the route was so treacherous. It was so treacherous, some people uh, chose to sail to the mouth of the Yukon River in western Alaska, and they followed the river across Alaska to the Klondike. 
but this was expensive and it became known as the rich man's route, but it was quite a bit easier. Most people went by means of Skagway and Dai, down in the panhandle of Alaska. Now, Skagway had quickly become the largest city in Alaska at the time, peaking at about 10,000 people in 1898. But this quickly dwindled after the, the diminishment of the gold rush. Now, little did a man named William or Billy Moore know that his 1887 boundary survey expedition in the area and his hunch that gold would be found in those mountains would lead to the gateway to the Klondike. Before the gold rush, he purchased 160 acres in the area, and he couldn't have known that when the first steamer showed up that it was the beginning of such an influx of people that his little claim would become a squalor of haphazardly built homes in a giant sloppy pit of mud. It was so chaotic, with no means of any order, disease and murder had become the norm, and an average of 1,000 prospectors made their way through Skagway per week. Needless to say, it was a bustling town. The Canadian government required each person to haul a minimum of 1,000 pounds of supplies, including a year's worth of food. If someone tried to be a light packer and they attempted to enter, he would be turned away for fear of massive rescue operations for the influx of people. Now, from Skagway and Dai, there were two trails. One was called the Chilkut and the other was the White Pass, and they both ended up at Lake Bennett. From Lake Bennett, they would have to build or rent their own boats and make their way up the Yukon to Dawson City. The Chilkoot Trail was 32 miles long, and it began by climbing a steep incline of about 1,500 steps. And this was the more widely used trail. But it took up to 30 trips to haul a single man's supplies, which amounted to almost 900 miles of walking with a load. Many of the deaths during the time took place on the Chilkut Trail due to hypothermia, slips, and falls. But in April of 1898, there were three avalanches within a 24-hour period, causing the death of about 70 people. The Chilkut Trail was known as the poor man's way because people who could not afford mules or horses had to go this way. And it sounds like it's something that I probably would have done because I'm cheap. <laughs> Uh, the White Pass was the other option. It was 43 miles long, and it could be done with a mule, which would was made it easier to transport your supplies. However, many beasts of burden died along the difficult trail, leaving dead animals all along the way. An estimated 3,000 horses died on this trail, earning it the name Dead Horse Trail. Now today, the Chilkut Trail is still open. It receives about 10,000 people a year who walk the trail. If you go to NPS.org, National Park Service, they actually did a really good job of posting photos from back in the day and compare them to photos of the day. You can see like photos then and photos today. It's pretty cool to check it out if you get a chance. Now, the website says if you hike the trail, you can see items left behind from the gold rush era that are still sitting there. And if you were to do the White Pass Trail, they say you can still see some of the horse bones that are still there along the path. And also, apparently, on the White Pass Trail, there is a railroad that goes through the pass, and it's a tourist attraction today. It actually looks like a beautiful ride, and um, I bet my kids would really enjoy doing that sometime. Now, upon reaching Lake Bennett, the prospectors took about a week to get there, 
and the prospectors had to build for themselves a canoe or a boat made from trees in the area. In the fall of 1897, a handful of people got stuck at Lake Bennett as the lake froze with the oncoming oncoming winter. The result was a miserable winter of camping out and eating their hauled-in supplies. Disease and malnutrition were the theme of the winter. It would have been miserable. By May of 1898, the lake had thawed out, and the prospectors continued their journey. Even the famous author Jack London, he gave up uh, gold to become a captain of a boat hauling people down the Yukon from Lake Bennett to Dawson City. At the time, the Canadian government made a requirement that only a qualified captain could lead a boat to the city. Of the 100,000 people who went north for gold, only about 40,000 made it to Dawson City, and the rest um, stopped their journey at Skagway or they're camping out at Lake Bennett, cut their trip short, and they had to pack up and head back home. It was just too difficult a journey. Now, at its peak, Dawson City, the, the destination of all these prospects wanted to get to, this is the area where the gold was originally found, very close to Bonanza Creek and the other areas where gold was found. Uh, Dawson City, as its peak, was in 1898 at 30,000 people. It had a mayor, a police force, and three newspapers, and it was the second most populated city in the West, believe it or not. It only lost to San Francisco and was equal in size to Seattle. A governing body was established in 1898 in Dawson City for the Yukon Territory to handle the influx of people. Dawson City remained the capital until 1953 when it was moved to Whitehorse, just a little ways to the south for the Yukon Territory. Today, Dawson City has only about 1,600 people, so that's down from 30,000, which is a big decrease. Um, According to Wikipedia, Dawson City had a devastating fire in 1897 when a dance hall girl named Dolly Mitchell threw a lamp at another girl in an argument. It also suffered flooding in 1925, 1944, 1966, 1969, and 1979. Another interesting historical find was called the Dawson Film Find in 1978. A construction project uncovered a forgotten collection of over 500 discarded silent films made between 1903 and 1929. So that would be a pretty cool find. Uh, Today, Dawson City is a Canadian National Historic Site and in large part lives on tourism. Now, it's interesting to me that at its peak was only a few years, but the idea of a gold rush still fascinates us today. We love the romantic story about quick riches, adventure, and going off into the unknown. It's hope for the greatness that stirs people up and the memory of risk taken. There's something in us that I think Jack London capitalizes on, and it's what made him successful. It's that wild side. It's the risk. It's the possibilities, the unknown, the adventure, the nothing to lose, so let's just go for it attitude that people love to relive in stories and books and movies. And certainly, many books and movies were made from this. Well, a very sad part of the Klondike Gold Rush is that most people were completely disappointed when they got there. They were disappointed to find out that the gold was not really just waiting for the taking. 
Of the 40,000 people who actually made it to Dawson City, only 15,000 found gold at all. Of the 15,000, less than 5,000 found enough to pay for their adventure. And of the less than 5,000, only 200 found gold that brought them profits. And of those 200 that found profit from the gold, only 40 or 50 actually got their gold out of the Klondike. The rest of the people who actually found profitable gold wasted it in Dawson City in gambling or just spending on frivolous things. This was a hard-won lesson in reality. But interestingly, the people who made moderate profits were the ones who were not uh, looking for gold, but they were entrepreneurs offering services to the prospectors through supplies, saloons. There was prostitution and there was hotels. It could be a lesson learned for us today that the best guarantee for making money with get-rich-quick uh, you know, opportunities is not the get-rich-quick thing, but it's in being an op- entrepreneur for the folks pursuing it. There's a phrase that came from this time. If you want to get rich during a gold rush, sell shovels. And I really like that. Some people make good money offering transportation services out of Skagway, and others open stores in Dawson City offering needed supplies. So here are some examples. Joseph Ledoux was the official founder of Dawson City shortly after Skookum Jim made his famous gold discovery. Now, he widely, widely, he wisely purchased a sawmill and the influx of people coming when they needed you know, to buy wood and lumber to build their homes and build the city. Um, he was the one that they bought from. So his, his foresight in buying this sawmill was very, very wise. And needless to say, he did very, very well. He made more money than most of the gold prospectors. There was a woman named Kathleen Rockwell. She became known as Klondike Kate. She made her fortune by dancing. She was fully clothed, but she danced for the men of Dawson City. As she did this, she recognized that men were willing to pay a full nugget of gold to have a single conversation with her. And so she made about $30,000 in a single year just dancing and talking to men for a nugget of gold. Now, $30,000 at that time in the late 1800s is enough to set you up for life. If you convert that to convert that to today's money, it's about 1.2 million dollars that she walked away with in one year. There was another woman. Um, I I could not find her name, but I read about her uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, she made her way to Dawson City with these mysterious canisters, and people would ask, "What's in those canisters?" And she wouldn't say. But as it turns out, when she got there, she opened a store and she made a lot of money selling silk to local women. There were not a lot of women there, but there was enough to where she made a huge amount of profit from her silk. There was another man named Soapy Smith. He was a high-profile con man who engaged in racketeering and fraud in the name of being a lawman for the town. However, he was eventually shot dead in Skagway, And perhaps this was a standard bad guy story coming to a just end. He was one really bad guy. Uh, Another man brought a team of mules, which he rented out to prospectors. It is believed that he made $5,000 per day. 
per day. If you convert $5,000 of money back then, that's uh, just under $200,000 in today's money. If you can imagine making almost $200,000 a day, you are doing very, very well. Now, the truth is that by the time the rush of people showed up in Dawson City, the majority of the claims had already been taken uh, and there was none left for the new prospectors. So the vast majority were wildly disappointed. But if you were an entrepreneur at the time, you were very likely to be to make a lot of money. So with thousands of uh, very disappointed prospectors hanging out in Dawson City, when gold was discovered in Anvil Creek in Alaska in the fall of 1898, many of the prospectors saw their new chance. But once again, they were too late in arriving there and all the claims were already taken. So they ended up at a beach near Nome, Alaska. And on that beach, they finally got their break. Gold was just lying along the beach waiting to be sifted out of the sand. And since beaches can't legally be claimed, anyone could just walk up there and sift through the sand of the beach and pull out their gold. Well, word of this quickly spread to Dawson City, and an estimated 8,000 people got up and left Dawson City for Nome, Alaska in a single week. Now, this newly produced gold rush in Nome, Alaska is its own story. There's quite a handful of books about this gold rush in Nome, which I haven't had a chance to open and look through yet, so I can't say much about this gold rush in Nome, except that a huge number of people suddenly swept into Alaska and into Nome, and this uh, also was the cause of many new communities in Alaska to spring up, is the gold discovered there. So I'm going to transition to uh, this idea of what was the impact of the gold rush in the early 19th century. Well, if you open up Google Earth and you look at Bonanza Creek, which was originally Rabbit Creek, now Bonanza Creek, which is near modern-day Dawson City, if you zoom in on Google Earth, you can see where it all started and you can see the scars all along the creek from heavy mining, mining, which um, was pretty strong up to 1966 when it came to an end. However, today there are still family mining operations that in the area that still produce just enough gold for them to live up there and pay their bills. They say that the area's landscape has been completely reworked through large mining operations, and in a very short time the native people watch their traditional hunting grounds get turned upside down by a mad rush of outsiders who came and left in a mad rush. Some sources cite that the local natives were the biggest losers in this whole thing. There was a drastic reduction in moose, caribou, and small game. Salmon streams were destroyed, and the gold miners introduced alcohol and disease to the native communities. However, one silver lining was that some of the local natives made pretty good money serving as guides, packers, and selling supplies to the prospectors at the time. Now, the Canadian government considered applying laws to protect the land, but they decided that the gold rush would probably be short-lived and not have much impact. How wrong they were. It was short-lived, but huge impact. They didn't anticipate such a large influx of people in such a short time. Miners with gold fever would dig into the landscapes with no regard for the environmental impact, and it affected soil erosion, salinity, water quality, and the introduction of destructive weeds and the extinction 
uh, of certain native animals. A huge number of trees were harvested for buildings, boats, for fires, uh, and for clearing land for mining, which left large areas void of trees and new growth for many, many years. So for the native people already living there, in just a few short years, their entire way of life would never be the same again. Now, since the gold rush ended, it left behind uh, a sense of adventure and excitement that inspired many stories and movies. Probably most famously was Jack London, who visited Dawson City between 1897 and 1898, and his time there inspired his book, The Call of the Wild, and his book was published in 1903. Now, that book, The Call of the Wild, is probably what made Jack London so famous, um, Charlie Chaplin made a movie in 1925 called The Gold Rush. And then in 1935, another movie called Call of the Wild was made starting, uh, starring Clark Gable. In 1972, another Call of the Wild movie uh, featuring Charlton Heston. And then another one in 2020 starring, starring Harrison Ford, which is one of my favorite movies. I love that movie. Uh, there's also another one called White Fang. A White Fang is uh, another book by London inspired by this era. Uh, White Fang is a 1991 Disney movie starring Ethan Hawke. And this was one of my favorite movies as a kid. And I actually told my wife that uh, I will buy that movie and we'll watch it together on one of our date nights. So I'm looking forward to that. Now, one more element of this uh, Klondike gold rush I'd like to point out is the missionary activity at the time. The missionaries recognized that this gold rush was a huge influx of people, and it opened up unique opportunities. Now, the first to Dawson City was the Anglican Church, which was in 1896, and this was followed by the Catholic Church the following year. In 1898, other mainstream churches rushed in, and therefore churches, hospitals, and shelters were constructed to serve that community. One prominent one was a man named Robert Dickey. He arrived in Skagway in October of 1898. When he arrived, he posted signs around the town to announce a church service. When the church service came, 70 to 90 rough-looking folks, quote, seasoned with hardship, unquote, attended the service. But the service, quote, radiated with warmth, unquote. Within a few weeks, a church building site had been chosen. The missionaries quickly founded schools, which would usually have just one teacher to run everything, and they had very meager pay. And so there's something heroic about that. The teachers were required to be equipped with um, a, a list of certain things. And here's the list, quote, a good, strong walking dress, a gray flannel dress or equivalent, two gingham or good calico dresses, a strong underskirt or balmoral, I don't know what that is, a waterproof cloak or ulster, as well as three pairs of strong shoes, three suits of underwear, and two to three sets of flannel underwear, unquote. So the message was clear, come ready for hardship, and they did. Now, the first hospital in Dawson City started in 1899 by, quote, the Sisters of St. Anne, and the hospital would be called St. Mary's. It was funded by donations and the sale of insurance. I thought that was interesting. Uh, they started out with just three nurses, and they treated typhoid, 
pneumonia, scurvy, frostbite, and injuries from mining accidents with very minimal equipment and supplies. So one can't help but to admire these women who took on this overwhelming task in serving the community at Dawson City. All right, so there's my uh, brief take on the Klondike Gold Rush. Certainly left out a lot, but uh, I do want to try to keep my episodes shorter than I have been so they're more listenable. Uh, But some final thoughts. The Klondike Gold Rush of 1898 offers us some lessons on the condition and nature of man. How easily we can be blinded by the prospect of quick riches and easy success, and yet how the adventure of a lifetime stirs something in us that makes us want to tell these stories again and again. And this is why there's lots of movies and books written and documentaries about this era in history. And this is why I love history. You can theorize all you want about the nature of man. You can theorize all you want about the best form of government or how to make the world a better place or what is the best strategy for fulfilling the Great Commission. But history is a constant sobering reminder of the reality of all of these endeavors that has all been tried before. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes that there is nothing new under the sun. And he was right. We would be wise to learn from our history, be humbled by it, and move forward guided by wisdom rather than by passion. All right, guys, thank you for listening to this episode on the Klondike Gold Rush, just a little bit more of Alaska history. I hope it instilled in you just a little bit more interest in Alaska and a little bit more love for its land, people, and story. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next time. Mm -hmm.